We are continuing through our, our study of this book together and looking at Romans chapter 10. Last week, as we as we finished chapter nine, we sort of sort of began this 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 tenth chapter by looking at the first four verses. But uh, this morning, I want to read starting at verse four because I believe that it, it helps us understand better what Paul says next. So this morning, I will read to you from Romans ten, beginning in verse four and going all the way down to the end of verse thirteen. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, help us this morning as we as we come to your word. Help us to see clearly, help us to hear clearly, help us to believe fully. And help us help us to know that. That faith is all that is required. And it is not the strength of our faith, it is not the the stability of our faith, it is not the. The quality of our faith, but it is the object of our faith that saves us. And so, Father, help us this morning, though our faith may be weak and frail, though our faith may fail at times. Help us to believe. Help us to trust that deep down. You have saved us and you have called us to yourself and we believe in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Over the, the last five weeks, your, your elders and, and some others who have joined us have been uh, learning about the, the practice of expository preaching on Monday nights. And it's, it's been a, a good, good few weeks. We've got one more tomorrow night, and I'm excited about it. I think that we've, we've covered a lot. And primarily, we've been teaching... Uh, and learning about the, this, this practice of exposition, how to read and preach and teach the Bible. And I've been very encouraged by, by these sessions, by our elders and those that, that have attended. Because personally, I love discussing the exposition of the scriptures. But you see, exposition is not just a, a method for reading and teaching the Bible. I, I believe that exposition is the only way 
to read and teach the Bible. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the term exposition and, and what it means, let me share with you my favorite definition of it. It's written by, by John Stott. He said, exposition is to bring out of the text what is there and expose it to view. The expositor pries open what appears to be closed. He makes plain what is obscure. He unravels what is knotted and unfolds what is tightly packed. I think it's a great definition because that's what exposition is. Taking what is here in God's word and exposing it to view. And I believe that it's the only true way to teach God's word. And I believe that both because of personal convictions that I hold, but also because that's what we see done in Scripture. This morning, we we come to a passage in Romans where the Apostle Paul is doing exposition. This is what he's practicing. This is how he's teaching. He is taking the Old Testament, exposing it to our view, teaching and showing how the word of God points us to Christ with the intent of encouraging faith in his readers. Now, I don't know if it's the timing of our arrival to this passage as we are kind of concluding our training sessions this week. Or it's just the affirmation that exposition is what the Bible teaches us to do. But I was blown away finding this passage at this stage in our study and and the timing of it all. I just couldn't believe it. I think it's just another way that God works to to teach us and to affirm his truth in various ways and in various timings that he does. And so this morning, as we come to this this passage, I don't I don't have any fancy or clever outlines for this passage. I'm sure they exist somewhere. But what I, I want to do with you as we study this passage is really just to show you how Paul read his Bible and how we also should read ours and how it applies to our lives. Because you see, for Paul, the gospel wasn't a new religion. It wasn't a a, a new faith or a new perspective. No, when he heard the good news of Jesus and when he read his Old Testament, he saw in those pages the true revelation of God and his salvation. You see, Paul's faith was anchored in the Old Testament. It was affirmed then in the New Testament writings and what he found, what he teaches here in Romans 10 is that salvation is available to everyone who believes in Jesus. And what Paul found in the scriptures is that faith is and always has been the only means of salvation. So let's look at at Paul's words here and see this for ourselves. Last week, if you were with us, we we looked at at two different kinds of, of races a race of works and a race of faith that, that you can try to, to run your way to God based on your own works, but you'll never reach that finish line. Or you can trust that God has reached the, the, the finish line for you and you can receive the reward of his finishing through faith. And so here Paul is sort of continuing this discussion on the law, but with a very different focus. You see, when we talk about the law, we talk about the Old Testament law specifically It's easy for us to to see our inability to obey this law and sort of dismiss it altogether. Well, because I I can't do the law, because because I can't obey the law as the law requires, then the law of God really doesn't matter. What matters is believing Jesus. And we sort of throw this out the window and we, we eliminate the law entirely. But that's not true for Paul, and it certainly wasn't true for Jesus. You could read in Matthew 5 where Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. 
For I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 5. He says not a single little dot over a single little I in the entire 600 plus commands of God's law. None of those will even fade. That heaven and earth will fade away before those fade. And so if we can't keep the law as we should, and we can't throw out the law as we may want to, how do we as Christians relate to the law? That's the question we need to answer. And, and so to do this, to provide an answer, Paul dives into the Old, Old Testament. First, he, he begins with Leviticus 18, verse 5, which says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them, which you see in verse five of Romans 10. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does them shall live by them. I mean, the point is clear. The law of God given to the people of God, it can provide eternal forever life. It can. The law of God can provide eternal life. But only if you do them and only if you do them perfectly. Which, of course, presents a problem for us, for Israel, for all mankind. No one does them perfectly. And so the offer of life for Israel in the Old Testament was never truly about obeying the law. Because they knew right from the very beginning, right from the time that God gave it to them, they could never do it. It was a bar they would never touch, a standard they would never meet, no matter how hard they reached for it. But Paul's not done with the Old Testament. He, he moves into Deuteronomy in the next few verses. And he does something, he does something strange, if I, can, if I can be honest. It is so strange that if I or anyone else treated the scriptures like Paul treats them here, every red flag in our pocket would be raised, every alarm bell would be sounding because we would say, you are mistreating and abusing the scriptures. Because Paul, if I can, if I can be honest... Paul takes some scissors to the book of Deuteronomy and then he patches them together in ways that they were not written. But while those red flags may raise and why those alarm bells may may sing, we need to understand something before we see what Paul did. Not everyone was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the word of God. Paul was. And so when he's writing these words, when he's understanding and and showing his understanding of the book of Deuteronomy, even if he does it in ways that we would question if we did it. We can trust that his handling of God's word, how he divides it here is true and appropriate because he's doing it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we should trust it. Let me let me show you what I mean, what what Paul does. Look at look at verse six. He says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart. And we'll we'll stop here because this is where Paul begins. He begins by quoting verbatim from the beginning of Deuteronomy 9. The, the, The scripture here, Deuteronomy 9 says, do not say in your heart. But that's the only part of the verse and that's the only part of the chapter that Paul quotes. Because the rest of it, it comes from Deuteronomy 30. And so he sort of cuts Deuteronomy nine and a half and then he pastes it on top of Deuteronomy 30. And 
We have questions. <laughs> and so we can ask, why does he do this? Why does he combine verses like this? What, what's the point that he's trying to make? When you look at the context of the, the chapter and the verses in Deuteronomy that Paul is quoting, I think it becomes clear. See, Deuteronomy 9. Moses writes, do not say in your heart after the Lord your God brings you into the promised land that it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. You see, Moses in Deuteronomy 9 is addressing a temptation that Israel would undoubtedly face when they received the blessings of God. They would think that the reason God was giving them these things was because they had obeyed. That they were righteous and therefore deserving of the blessings of God. And Moses says right from the beginning, before they ever step foot in the promised lands, don't do that. Let's just clear the air before anything begins, Israel. You are not righteous, but God is gracious. And that truth hasn't changed in the time between Deuteronomy and Romans. And it certainly hasn't changed in the time between Romans and today. Christian, you are saved not because you are righteous. You are saved not because you have obeyed. You are saved not because you've done something right or you've made the right choice. You are saved simply because God is gracious to save you. And that's the point that Paul is making by just bringing in just a few words from Deuteronomy 9. He wants to remind the Roman church. He wants to remind us that your salvation is not because you have done something, but it is because God is gracious to you. It's never been about your righteousness. Salvation's never been about you doing what is right. Salvation's never been about you earning your place. Salvation has always been about the grace of God in your life. And then he moves on to Deuteronomy 30. But he changes it. Again, something that we wouldn't recommend doing when we read the Old Testament. But this is what Paul does. And honestly, it reminds me of... Do you remember those those cards and the magazines and different different uh, handbooks and playbooks that you would have as kids where you'd have the, the spot, the difference game and you'd have two pictures on the same page, almost identical, the same scene. But the instructions at the top of the page were there are 500 differences between these two pictures. Can you find them? And of course, the differences could be as big as that building is missing or as small as I think that bird is winking at me like it, it's it's. But the, the challenge of it is, can you spot the difference? And so I thought we'd play a can you spot the difference game. I want you to keep your eye on Romans 10, and I want to read to you from Deuteronomy 30, where Paul quotes, and see if you can spot the differences. This is what Deuteronomy 30 reads. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who, sh who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart that you can do it. Did you notice the differences? Let me point out three. So that we're all on the same page. First, Deuteronomy 30 is about the law. Paul changes it to make it about Christ. 
He changes, he, he inserts and swaps out all of the, the, the commandment language and all the law language, and he makes it about Jesus. Moses says that Israel is without excuse when it comes to obeying the law, because it has been given to them. They didn't have to go up to heaven to, to receive it from God. God brought it down and gave it to them so that they would obey. And he means to show this as good news. Moses is, is explaining this as good news in Deuteronomy 30. Because Israel couldn't go up to heaven and then come back. You couldn't climb the mountain of God. You couldn't ascend to the places of God and receive his law and then come back down to give it to everyone else. It's an impossible mission. But God came down to Israel at Sinai and gave them his law. Something that they could never achieve on their own. Paul says the law is actually about Christ. Who could ascend into heaven and bring Christ down to us? No one. And yet Christ came down to give us what we could never achieve on our own. Had he never come down, we never would have gone up. And the reason that Paul is able to make this change, taking the law and swapping it for Christ, is actually found in verse 4. Look at look at chapter 10, verse four. He says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes that word end there. It's emphatic in the sentence and it's the word. The Greek word is telos. Which doesn't mean that Christ has put an end to the law. It doesn't mean that he has stopped the law or that he has abolished the law. But telos rather has the connotation of goal, finish line, fulfillment. And so what Paul is saying in verse four is that Christ is the fulfillment of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes he is the goal. He is everything that the law is pointing to. And just as Israel could not ascend to heaven to receive the law, neither could we ascend to heaven to receive Christ. And yet God in his unfathomable grace came down. He came down to us because we could never go up to him. That's the first difference. Second, the second difference. Deuteronomy 30 mentions going across the sea. Romans 10 mentions going down into the abyss. And to, to, to grasp this change and why Paul makes it, I, I think we should understand how Israel as a nation traditionally viewed the sea. They were not a seafaring people. In fact, when they looked at the ocean, they saw danger and chaos and, and death. That's what the sea was for Israel. It was a place you go to die. Which honestly makes sense to me. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the ocean. I love swimming in the ocean. I love being on the beach. But there is something terrifying about the ocean, isn't there? Like even take take a take away the, the undertow and the rip currents and all the things that can just grab you and take you wherever it pleases. But just think about the things that swim in the ocean. The size comparison. Paige took the kids to the to the beach this week and they were swimming around. Uh, Paige was out in the water with Eddie and and all of a sudden the lifeguards are running up and down the beach whistling and calling everyone to get out of the water. Because a helicopter had flown over the beach not long ago and saw a shadow swimming among the, the, the shallow waters. A shark swimming among the swimmers. And no one had a clue. 
They were completely unaware of what was swimming right around them. I mean, that's what makes the the sea so scary. There are literal monsters swimming at your ankles. And you have no idea. I don't think it's a stretch for Paul to swap sea and abyss. Because what Paul has in mind here when he uses this word abyss is much more than just a scary place. It's a place of no return. If someone is trapped on the bottom of the ocean without oxygen and without food, there is nothing that you can do to go down and get them. Is there? And in fact, if you do try to go get them, the only thing that is a guarantee is that you will join them. See, Paul's change by changing sea for, for abyss. Paul is pointing us to the grave. If someone is dead in their grave, there is nothing that you or I can do to bring them out of it. And he then compares this to Christ. He says, who can descend into the abyss to bring Christ out? Christ died. He died for your sins. He died for my sins. He died and he descended into the place of the dead. The place for us of the place of no return. Who could go down there and get him? No one. Who could save Christ? But again, we can't do this. And we don't have to. Because Christ rose from the dead. Vindicated by the Father. Resurrected to new life. So Paul changes Christ for the law. He changes uh, abyss for the sea. Third, he changes law and gospel. Deuteronomy 30 says that the law is near you. It is in your heart and and on your mouth. Paul changes it to say the gospel is near you. This word of faith that we proclaim is near you. It is in your heart and is on your mouth. Now, Moses' point in Deuteronomy 30 is is that because God has brought the law down to Israel, it now resides near them, within their reach, within their ear sight. They can hear it, therefore they should obey it. But Paul, keeping with his theme here, changes it to make it about Christ and to make it about the gospel and how we should respond. So I want you I want you to walk through walk you through Paul's train of thought. So follow this with me. This is what Paul's making. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He did what we couldn't. We couldn't ascend to heaven and bring him down, so he came down on his own according to his will, and he perfectly obeyed the law of God, something we could never do. And having come to us, living in perfect obedience, he died a death that was meant for us. And in that death, he descends into the grave, into the abyss. Another place that no one could hope to go down and save him from. But he doesn't need us to save him. He was raised by the Father and he was brought to new life. And now, having come down from heaven... Fulfilling the law, having come up from the grave, defeating death, he now stands within our reach. Do you see that the image that Paul is painting? We couldn't go up and get him, so he came down. We couldn't go down and save him, so he came up. Now he is here, where we are. He is within our reach. 
And the word of faith, the gospel, the work and person of Jesus, God himself is near you. He is in your mouth and he is in your heart. He is not far off. He is not unreachable. He does not require us to climb to a height so that we might be able to touch him. He does not require us to put ourselves so far down into the dirt that he that we might save him from there. Oh, but look what he says. He is near you. Look at look at verse eight. The word is near you. He is accessible. It is in your mouth. That means it is understandable. We can speak things and make sense of it. It is believable. It is in your heart. And it is proclaimable. This word of faith that we proclaim. You see, the reason that we are saved by faith alone and not by works is not is not because we have something left to do, but it is precisely because all of the works have been finished. And all that is required now is simple faith. The reason that Christ is now so near, so accessible to us is because the only thing we need, the only requirement that is that is given is faith. Believe, confess. I mean, is this not the conclusion that Paul reaches in verses 9, 10, and 11? He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scriptures say everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's it. That's the entire point. Believe and be saved. And it's always been this way. Even for Israel, going back into the Old Testament. Believe and be saved. Because Christ has done it all. All that we could never do, He has done. And His righteousness is applied to those who believe. And everyone who believes will not be put to shame. They will escape the final judgment of God because Christ did not escape the wrath of God at Calvary. Don't you see it? This isn't a believe and hope for the best faith. This is not a try your hardest and pray you get God on a good day faith. This is certainty. God calls his people to himself. And he gives them faith, sealing and affirming that he has chosen them for himself. That faith confirms his election and his calling. And that as we place faith in him, as he has chosen us and called us, everyone who believes, all who believe, will not be put to shame. Faith in Jesus will never result in your condemnation. Ever. There is no greater thing to stress to you this morning than that. Your faith in Jesus will never put you to shame in the presence of God. The presence of the world, that might be a different story. But in the presence of God, you will never be put to shame if your faith is in Christ. But what does that faith entail? We spend a lot of time calling people to believe and calling people to have faith, but... But what does that look like in practice? 
I think there's three things that Paul teaches us about what faith looks like practically. First, faith is personal. Faith is personal. No one can believe for you or on your behalf. That's why there's one emphasis here on the heart. You must believe in your heart. For that is how you are justified. With the heart one believes and is justified, declared righteous. Faith is always personal. But it's also more than just personal. Because the second aspect of faith is that faith is corporate. Notice that there's a twofold action here. Yes, you must believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. But you also must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And he says this, he puts this twofold emphasis, he says it twice. What's the point of confessing with your mouth if there's no one around to hear you say it? When Paul is saying you must confess with your mouth, he is meaning that you must do it in the presence of someone else, in the presence of a people, in the presence of a body. You see, the reason that confession with your mouth matters is because confession is faith out loud. It is taking what you believe deep down within your heart and you are bringing it out loud so that other people can hear it. And this out loud faith is always done in the context of other people, of other believers, of the church. And I think we've lost sight of this. And it's to our destruction. I mean, just look at the way we talk about faith, whether ours or other people's. My faith is between me and Jesus. That business is between her and God. I mean, is is faith personal? Yes, absolutely. Has to be. But is faith only personal? Never. The gospel is not about me and Jesus. The gospel is about we and Jesus. Always. Always has been. God's not calling a bunch of individuals to himself. God's calling a people. A single entity. A body. To himself. To belong to him. To be his bride forever. And this is why church membership is such a big deal. It, it's, just part, it's, it, it's not just to be a part of some social club. It is belonging to the body of Christ. Having a place among the people of God. And the benefits that come with this faith out loud. This confession. This, it, it's immense. Just consider that within the church. By being a part of the church. Not a regular attender. But I mean a member. You have elders, shepherds who care for you, who pray for you, who support you, who teach you and encourage you, who convict you. You have brothers and sisters who will walk beside you, who share your faith, who embrace your struggles and your doubts, and they carry your burdens as if they were their own. They encourage you in your work and in your studies. They read the Bible with you. They pray with you. They support you in your marriage. They support you in your singleness. They support you in raising a family and having a job. They support you in retirement. But more than all of that, the church is the people who hear your confession of faith out loud and they affirm it. And they say, yes, we see this. 
And we believe that you belong to the bride of Christ. You need both the personal and the corporate dimensions of faith for salvation. And I don't say that lightly. I, I, I say that because that's what Paul teaches. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. It's not a believe in your heart you will be saved. It's not a confess out loud and then you'll be saved. It's a both and. So faith is personal and faith is corporate. Last thing that I think we see here is that faith means submission. Faith means submission. Do you notice how many times Paul refers to Jesus as Lord in the last few verses? I mean, we're so used to that word, we've, we've sort of missed its weightiness, I fear. But the Romans would not have missed it. They would not have missed what Paul was saying. Because you see, in Rome, there was no room for confusion on who ruled over them, who their Lord was. In fact, the Roman Empire wouldn't allow for such room for this confusion. And they would require public confession. They required people to stand in a public square and profess Caesar is Lord. Regularly. And what caused the early stages of persecution from the Roman Empire to the church was the fact that so many Christians refused to do it. They brought them out into the public square. They brought them out into the Colosseum. They threatened them with all kinds of horrendous deaths and sufferings. And they said, all you have to do is say the words, Caesar is Lord. To which the church boldly claimed, Jesus is Lord. And you see, at the time that Paul wrote this letter... The man in charge, the man that required his citizens to say Caesar is Lord was a man by the name of Nero. Who at the risk of exaggerating, and I don't think I am, was evil personified. And you see, when Paul says that Romans must confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, he is calling on the Roman church and he's calling on every church to forsake all other kings and rulers who would suppose to have the type of authority that Christ alone had over them. Now, Paul's not saying that the Romans must disobey Nero or disobey the government. He'll get to that in Romans 13. But what this means is that the ultimate governing authority in the life of a Christian was Jesus and only Jesus. Because you see, faith in the Lord always leads to submission to the Lord. Always. And that means that no matter what the world says we must do or what we must believe or what we what we must embrace or what we must agree to, our first and primary allegiance is always to the lordship of Jesus. Because you cannot have Jesus as savior if you do not have Jesus as Lord. He is not one or the other. And practically. That means that we must submit to him. 
We may feel that certain parts of this word are outdated and archaic and no longer applicable and meant for someone else, but certainly not for me. Placing faith in Jesus means you submit to everything in this book. Because it's what the king commands. And so when we say that Jesus is Lord, when we confess out loud in the presence of other believers, in the presence of the church, that Jesus is Lord, we are saying that he is Lord over my heart and over my loves. We are saying that he is Lord over my dating relationships and over my marriage. We are saying he is Lord over singleness and Lord over parenting. We are saying he is Lord over how we honor our parents. Lord over the way that we spend our time and Lord over the way that we spend our money. He is Lord over the jobs we take and the decisions we make and the houses we build or purchase and the places that we move to or stay home from. It means that he is Lord over our retirements and he is Lord over our busyness. He is Lord over our free time. To say that Jesus is Lord means that he is Lord over every minute detail of every second of our lives. And anything short of that is to say that Jesus is not Lord. I think that this passage matters a great deal for us. And I think it matters depending on who we are and where we are in this faith journey. Because I think there's three types of people here this morning. And I think before we, we can really understand how this, we, we, we know that Christ has come down. We know that Christ has fulfilled the law as Paul has taught. We know that he has defeated death and the only requirement that he gives us is faith for salvation. But depending on where we are, I think this passage speaks in at least one of three ways. I think first, if you're here this morning and faith has never been personal to you. Maybe it's been handed down. Maybe it's been something that's just been a part of your family for longer than anyone can remember. And it's just something that you do. And so you're here because it's just something we do on Sundays or it's the right thing to do on a Sunday. But faith has never really been personal to you. We've seen it more as a group project sort of thing. And I think the questions that must be asked of you this morning is, do you believe this? Do you personally believe that Jesus fulfilled the law in your place? He died the death that you deserved and that he rose to give you new life, power over the grave forever. Do you believe this? Not do your parents believe it, not do your grandparents believe it, not do your kids believe it, not does your spouse or your best friend believe it. Do you personally believe this? And I think it's worth pointing out here that Paul never talks about the quality of that faith. He never says that the faith must be so strong or it must be so stable. He never says that it must pass a certain strength or a standard. But the reality is that you can personally have the weakest, most timid, shaking faith. But as long as that faith is placed in the right person, that faith is enough. I think the the second type of person we have here this morning is someone who does have a personal faith. But it's someone who lacks a corporate faith. 
If you have believed personally, do you believe corporately? Are you a member of the people of God, a member of his church? I'm thankful to have had as as many church membership conversations that I've had in the last two to three months. I mean, it's honestly, it's a joy to hear that there are brothers and sisters who who desire to, to join us and are considering it. But I also know that there are many of you who are not doing that. You've been here for a while now, but you've never been a member. What's stopping you from living in obedience to God's word and joining his church? The third type of person, which I think might be more than any of the first two. Are those of us who struggle with this lordship of Jesus? We've grasped the personal aspect of faith. We've joined the church. We've grasped the corporate aspect of faith. But this submission component, I'm not so great at that. What areas of your life are you keeping to yourself? What areas are you telling Jesus, you can be Lord over all of that, but this is my little kingdom? You see, when this happens, while we may believe that Jesus is Lord and while we may confess out loud that Jesus is Lord, we practically and functionally are denying his lordship. And saying, Jesus, it's good for you to be king of of that. And we want you to be ruler of this country and we want you to be ruler over this community and we want you to be Lord over over these areas of our lives. And we definitely want you to be Lord over our children and our grandchildren. And we definitely want you to be Lord over this. But you know what? These little sins that I like so much. I'm afraid of what you might do with them if I let them go. And so I'm going to hold on to these and I'm going to rule over these and I'm going to be in control of these. You have everything else. These I'm going to keep. And what we're saying when we do that is that the lordship of Jesus is not ultimate. It's only partial. It doesn't. He's not the Lord of all. He's just the Lord over that. It doesn't matter which of the three groups you fall in or if you fall into all three The promise of Romans 10, 4 through 13 is that this faith, this salvation, this gospel is available, accessible, understandable, believable to everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So call and be saved. Pray with me. Father, we're thankful for your word. May it drive us. May it drive us deeper into you. Help us to believe. Strengthen the faith that you have given us. Strengthen the calling that you have given in our lives. God, I pray, I pray for, for those that are here this morning that do not know what it means to have personal faith. God, would you give them personal faith in Jesus this morning? Teach them what it means to believe. God, we pray for those that that have embraced faith personally but have not corporately. Would you 
move in them and help them to see the beauty of the church and being a part of it, uniting with the body of Christ. And God, for those of us that are holding on to areas of our life that we are refusing to give you lordship over. Ultimately, God, our prayer is that you would take it from us. Forcibly, if you have to. But we recognize and we admit and we confess. Jesus is Lord and he is Lord over all. Teach us to submit in faith. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.